All right, so we'll be looking uh, here at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Again, like I said, a, um, a section of Scripture that I've been thinking a lot about over the last couple of years. The Lord continually brings it to my mind. Just uh, in my New Testament class, we actually just worked through this passage um, this, this past week. And so I've entitled this message, Servants and Stewards. And I'll explain what that means as we go along, but by way of introduction, I want to remind you of kind of what's happening in 1 Corinthians, since we're just dropping in here. You'll remember that 1 and 2 Corinthians are perhaps the most corrective of all the epistles. You know, the the epistles, the letters that were written by the apostles to the early church, we have to remind ourselves that they were almost always corrective. In other words, there was something going on in the church that needed to be dealt with. And that's very important for us because sometimes we can get into this false idea of we just got to get back to the early church. Just get back to the early church. Get back to the early church. You mean get back to a church that are sinners like us? (laughs) Because that's what they were. They were sinners. And, And so the church in Corinth especially had some problems because Corinth was essentially the Las Vegas of their day. And so you imagine a church being planted in Las Vegas, and you, you imagine people kind of living that sort of lifestyle, now becoming believers, and having to come out of that lifestyle to be retrained, to be different, it's going to be a challenge. And so I want to just remind you of a little bit briefly of what happened in the first three chapters. That way, when we jump into chapter four, we kind of know what's going on. We have a little bit of context. In chapter one, Paul begins with dealing with division. There was division in the church. People were kind of saying, I'm of of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and and there was a lot of infighting in the church. And so then he moved on to the exaltation of God's wisdom versus human wisdom. You see, the church in Corinth was in Greece, okay? And the the Greeks were all about their philosophy. I mean, if you kind of think about the big three philosophers, Socrates, you know, Plato, and Aristotle, they're all from from Greece. And so they had a lot of pride in their human wisdom, but Paul was trying to reorient them to God's wisdom. And then we had um, the importance of of humility and boasting in the Lord alone, not boasting in what we can do, not boasting in who we are, but in who the Lord is. That was chapter one. Then in chapter two, Paul talked about how when he came to them, he came and he preached Christ crucified, that he wasn't trying to convince them with fancy argumentation, but instead he was presenting them the person of Jesus Christ and how he was crucified for them. Then he also spoke about how we can know the mind of God because the Holy Spirit indwells us and he reveals the mind of God to us. Then in chapter 3, Paul reminded the Corinthians that all true Christian workers are ultimately on the same team. That they're not divided, that they're all on the same team. And so you kind of think about it, you know, as like a tug of war. If you've ever been in a tug of war contest, and if you've ever probably had um, field day in elementary school, you've been in a tug of war contest. And so as you're pulling in that tug of war contest, you know that if everybody on your team pulls together, you do well. If you don't, you do poorly. And so um, also in chapter three, he says, you know, that we have different jobs to do and that will be rewarded according to our faithfulness. Okay, this brings us to the passage we'll study this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul writes, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time, until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. 
then each one's praise will come from God. Now, again, I've entitled this message Servants and Stewards, and we're going to move through seven sections in this piece of scripture, so I promise to have you out by 3 p.m., all right? No, we'll, we'll, I'll time it well. And so we're going to seek to understand what God is calling us to as we serve him. And it's just such a rich passage. We're going to, you know, briefly go through these seven sections. But I think there's something here for each one of us that the Lord would, would speak to us. So let's move into our first section, and that's servants. And we find this in, again, in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, verse 1, and part A of verse 1. And so there's a reminder here, though, as we move into this, that much of this letter so far, much of 1 Corinthians so far in the first three chapters, has been focused on the divisions in that church that were caused by an unhealthy devotion to various human leaders. So, so think about in human history, and, and we'll kind of expand out besides just Christian history, think about how much division is caused because people are fixated on having unhealthy devotion to some human leader, right? I don't have to go too far. You guys know how that works. And because people see these different leaders and there's some kind of gain in their association with them. There's some kind of credibility that goes along with them. There's some kind of sense of identity with them. And so most notably, what was happening in, in the church in Corinth is people were divided up mostly among the human leaders of Paul, Apollos, and Peter. And so it was kind of like if, if they were to come to church, and this by use of illustration, there were a certain section that came with their Paul jersey, and a certain came with their Apollos jersey, and certain came with their Peter jersey, and they sat in separate sections, and they were kind of doing their own thing, and there was this sectarian spirit. Well, when that happens, you know the divisiveness. You understand that. It's wild how this takes place, that as soon as, you know, you say, well, my favorite Christian leader is so-and-so, and you're like, oh not for me. I'm more of a Spurgeon guy, right? And you, and you begin to divide up because you say this Christian leader is better than this Christian leader, and therefore, because I associate with this better Christian leader, I too am better. And that's, that's what was happening. And so as we enter into 1 Corinthians 4, Paul's once again seeking to set the record straight about the true role of Christian leaders. Please hear me. Christian leaders are not celebrities. Christian leaders are not celebrities to be adored but servants to work with. Christian leaders are not celebrities to be adored, but are servants to work with. Now, here's the problem for you and I. We can be so much a part of a culture that we, we, we lose track of these things. There, I think it's really questionable that Christian leaders have study Bibles named after themselves. I think it's questionable. I think it's questionable to kind of have that sort of thing because now you associate, I'm above all of these people. What's very interesting, I think, about the Calvary Chapel movement is most people in society don't have any idea who Chuck Smith was. They don't have any idea who Chuck Smith is because as he was seeking, as God used him as a part of this movement, he refused to be an idol. He refused to kind of promote himself. And so that's really important for us. So it's not only for the people we looked up to and we say, oh, I look up to this person. He ministers to me and that kind of stuff. That's great. But they're not somebody to be adored. They're somebody to work with. And the good news for us and or a reminder for us, perhaps it's bad news for some of us, you're never going to be a celebrity in God's eyes. Okay, we, we just, I think it was in the verse that we read is that God won't share his glory with another right? It belongs to God. So if we can just accept that and say, I am never going to be a Christian celebrity, that's not what God wants from me, your life will become a lot easier. 
Because now you don't have to work to that. Now you and I can just be servants. It's easy. All right, let's con- continue on there in verse 1. He says, let a man so consider us. This word consider means to estimate, esteem, or value. So, so it's, a, it's a, a consideration. And you think about like whenever, um, say you want to buy a new house, and you have a person come over to inspect it, and then there's the, you know, they, they basically say, well, this house is worth this much. It values this much, and so you can get a loan for this much. That's that kind of idea of estimating, esteeming, valuing, figuring it out. So Paul wants the Corinthians to think clearly about God's ministers, about God's servants. He's seeking to give the Corinthians proper perspective. And so let's back up for just a minute from kind of Christian celebrities, and let's just think about celebrities in general. How America views celebrities, it's as if they were more than human. They're above human, right? As if they don't have to go to the bathroom, you know, or as if they're these kind of things, right? They have these these carefully sculpted kind of personas, but that's not reality. That's not what they are. But again, unfortunately, even as believers, we may treat Christian leaders that we respect in a similar way, as if they were more than human, Because God has gifted them in certain ways, we may start thinking, well, you know what? I mean, they're just kind of a a certain class of person. They're a little bit different than we are. But in the scriptures, it talks, I think it's in the book of James, that it says that Elijah was a guy just like us. He's a normal person who God used in in a supernatural way. And so as we think about that, you know, uh, what can happen is if the Lord uses us in a very visible way, Maybe God uses us in a a special way in someone's life. We may begin to lose perspective. We may begin to think of ourselves in a way that does not correspond with reality. And so I I would uh, draw your attention. I'll, I'll read it for you. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul wrote this. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who's among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt each one a measure of faith. And so it's a beautiful verse there because what it's saying is when we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, we're in a sense drunk, right? Because Paul says, I don't want you to think that way, but I want you to think soberly. When a person imbibes too much alcohol, what happens is they lose perspective. They begin to think they can jump over things they can't jump over, (laughs) They begin to think, that, and so how many of America's Funniest Home Videos are really just drunk people doing things, right? It's the reality because they've lost perspective. And so it is when we begin to be puffed up, we lose perspective. We think that we're something that we're actually not. And so Paul's going to tell the Corinthians later on, he's like, he says, what do you have that you've not been given? And if you've received it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? And so it's very important for us to maintain this humility. So the key to avoiding these pitfalls is to always consider Christian ministers, notice there in verse 1, as servants. We should always consider Christian ministers as servants. Now that word servant is literally an under rower. Now perhaps you've seen the movie Ben-Hur, not the newer one that was horrible, but the original with Charlton Heston, you know, and he's there and he's chained to, the, to uh, the oar and he's rowing. And there's the guy beating the drum for the time and he's rowing and he's rowing. That's actually what we as believers are to be as servants. We're to be under rowers, okay? Not sitting on the deck in a beach chair, you know, and, and the, the wind blowing through our hair, but actually down in the, down in the bowels of the ship rowing. That's what we're called to. 
We're called to be these under rowers. We know that we're going to have our time in the sun. We know the time is coming, and we'll get to that at the end of this message, where God will reward us. But, but the, the time for all of that isn't yet. The time is to row. Now, it's interesting, this word servant or under rower, it's also defined as an assistant carrying out the will of another. An assistant who carries out the will of another. One commentator put it this way. One who acts under direction and asks no questions. One who does the thing that he is appointed to do without hesitation. And one who, who reports only to the one who is over him. So here's the good news about being an under rower, about being this sort of servant. You only have actually one boss. Okay, The triune God is your boss. So now I can serve other people. You can serve other people because those other people aren't your bosses. God's only your boss. And now you can have clarity in how you should serve and why you should serve because he's only one boss. When we get so frustrated is we feel like we have a bunch of bosses, right? A bunch of different people kind of pulling at us, a bunch of different directions to go. But if we can clarify in our hearts and minds that God is our only boss, we're a servant to him. Now, all of a sudden, we can serve other people freely and easily because we're only seeking to serve one. Because you know, if there are two people you're trying to serve, no two people are the same, and so you're going to be pulled. And the more people you're trying to, you know, to, to, to serve in, in a way of like trying to please them, you're going to be all twisted up. So just realize, okay, where I'm only serving the Lord Jesus, therefore, I, I can serve all these other people in a, in a beautiful way. Now, this should change how we view Christian leaders, and it should also change how we view ourselves. The focus should not be on the under rower. Okay, really important. The focus is not on the under rower. The focus should be on the one who's directing the rowers. That's the focus. The focus is not on individual under rowers. The focus is on the one who's directing the under rowers. And of course, that director is Christ. Notice, uh, continuing on in verse one, let a man so consider us as servants or under rowers of Christ. Under rowers of Christ. Now, the foundational element of servanthood is the fact that a servant has a master. That's the most simple factor of being a servant. You can't be a servant if you don't have a master. So the most fundamental element of servanthood is that a servant has a master. And for the Christian servant, that master never changes. That master is Christ. Christ is always your servant. Now, here's the good news. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever, so you don't have to wake up every morning and be like, I wonder how he's going to want me to serve today. He's, he's, he says, hey, what are the greatest commandments? Love God and love others. Okay. What else do you have? Okay. You know, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Okay. All right. You know, you, you start going through the scriptures. It's the same. Every day, it's the same from the standpoint of the expectation or the, the direction and so if we lose sight of the fact that our master is Christ, what we're going to do is we're going to find ourselves rowing in circles. I don't know if you've ever tried to canoe with somebody, you know, and you're in there, and it's, it's a fun time. It, it's amazing how difficult it is to make that boat go straight. Um, you just, you know, you have different arm lengths or different strengths or different, you know, tempo that you row with, and it's a challenge to get going in the right direction. And so it is for us. If, if we don't allow Christ to direct us, then what's going to happen is we're going to be off and we're going to be going in circles. And so um, Randy and I, um, you know, a few weeks ago, we went to go see the, the movie The Boys in the Boat. 
right? And, and so it's a, it's a great movie, encouraging movie, and I would encourage you to see it. Um, we had gone through the book before, and it's very interesting. It's about this um, rowing team from the University of Washington um, back in the 30s at the Berlin Olympics and kind of all that went on with them. But, you know, as I was kind of thinking back through that movie and, and thinking about this uh, rowing, uh, there's, there's a person on the rowing crew who calls the shots, and he's called the coxswain, right? He is actually the boss of the crew. He's the one. And so, so you know, I had looked up, what is the role of the coxswain? This is what he's to do. He steers the boat. He provides motivation and encouragement to the crew. He informs the crew of where they are in relation to the other crews and the finish line, and he makes any necessary race tactic calls. That sounds a lot like how the Lord does with us. Those are the same sort of things he does. And what's so interesting is if you look at these, these rowing, and I believe in that, that um, the, the boys in the boat, I think it was an eight-man crew. I think that's how it was. Um, but they're actually, their back is to the finish line. The way you row, you row with your back to the finish line, and it's actually the coxswain who sees the finish line and sees everything else. You're not to look around at the other boats. And you can't see the finish line. You're just to row in the way that the coxswain tells you to row. And that, to me, is, is how it is with Christ. You and I have no idea how close we are to the finish line, right? Sometimes we look in the mirror and say, I'm, I'm pretty close, <laughs> right? We may think that, but we don't really know. And so as we're to row, we're to keep our eyes on the coxswain. We're to keep our eyes on Jesus as he knows how far we are, as he, makes, he steers the boat, as he provides motivation and encouragement, as he informs us of where we are, and he makes the necessary changes to the tactics. I think that's a very helpful for us to think, but we'll only respond to him as our coxswain if we believe we're servants. If we think it's our boat and we want to row it wherever we want to row, then we're not going to respond to him and we're going to find ourselves maybe falling over some falls, <laughs> you know, maybe going up on the shore, any of those things. Let's listen to him. All right, let's move on to our second section here, and this is stewards. So we've seen servants. Now we're going to look at stewards. And the sec- next part of, of verse 1, he says we're going to be and stewards, servants and stewards. So a steward is a manager. He's an overseer a person who manages the domestic affairs of a family. He's someone who doesn't own the stuff, but he oversees the stuff. Perhaps, you know, uh, uh, there'll be a very wealthy family and say they have a house on the Mediterranean that they only come to in the summer. Well, the rest of the year, that steward lives in that house and he takes care of the house. So when that family comes back, it'll be in the order they want it to be. That's what a steward is. Now, I see an important distinction, again, between a servant and a steward. The primary relation of a servant is to his master, while the primary relation of a steward is to the goods that he oversees and distributes. Okay, so a servant is to a master, steward is to goods. So these are two different elements of kind of how we're to to faithfully serve Christ. So the Christian is to have his eyes on Christ as he rose through this life, and at the same time, the Christian is to be a steward who oversees and distributes goods. But, but what are these goods? What are these goods that we're to distribute? Well, notice next, it says, stewards of the mysteries of God. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Well, let me define mysteries for you here. It means what was hidden or unknown until revealed. Previously hidden secrets, which God revealed to the apostles and prophets of the New Testament period. In other words, the Bible is something called progressive revelation. 
In other words, over time, God has revealed more and more of himself to people. We in the New Testament have been fully, had these mysteries fully revealed to us, so we're to share those with other people. As our eyes have been opened, as we've learned these things, then we share that with somebody else. And so that's what we're to be. We're to be those people who say, this is not my mystery. It doesn't belong to me. It's been revealed to me, so I want to share it with you. And so um, people or believers, I'm sorry, uh, we believe that Paul and the other apostles, again, revealed these mysteries to the church through their inspired writings. So as you're reading the New Testament, you're reading the mysteries of God, these things that God has revealed. And they showed us, Paul and the others showed us that they were good stewards by sharing these truths with us. If you think about that, you know, you and I are believers today um, because God used those men in the past to reveal these truths to us so that the faith would come by hearing, hearing by the word of God, and we would become believers. So it's an amazing thing to think about. But how can we apply this idea, right? It's one thing for those who wrote the scriptures, but how can we apply this idea of being a steward of the mysteries of God to ourselves? Well, let me, let me give you a couple of verses. Would you please, first of all, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, this is uh, the last letter that Paul wrote, and he's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. He's giving him some final instructions. And so I think these are very helpful verses. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 16 and 17 as we consider uh, being stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul writes in verses 16 and 17, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay. So as you and I study the word of God, right, we realize that it's, it's, it's of profit. It's, it's valuable. It's useful for, for you know, talk, doctrine, which is teaching, for reproof, correction, you know, helping set things right, for instructing people in how they can grow in the Lord and become more like him. And that as we do that, then we become complete, right? We become equipped for every good work call, God has called us to. So if we want to be stewards of the mysteries of God, if we want to be good house managers of the goods that God's provided for us, it's incumbent upon us to study the word of God. It's, it's, it's a non-negotiable. We can't go out and say, well, I'm just going to let the Spirit lead, um, but I have no idea what the Word of God says. Well, if you have no idea what the Word of God says, how will you know what you hear in your head is actually the Spirit? How do you know it's not just you? How do you know it's not just the last thing that you watched on YouTube? <laughs> right? It's important for us to, if we're going to be these stewards, good stewards, that we hide God's Word in our heart that we might not sin against them. That, that we, we can kind of have this treasure we bring out for other people. Now, with this in mind, would you turn to 1 Peter chapter 4? Again, thinking about how you and I can be stewards of the mysteries of God. 1 Peter chapter 4, near the end of your Bibles, we're going to look at verses 10 and 11. So Peter is writing to Christians there in the early church. All right, and this is for every believer. He says, as each one has received a gift... Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. There it is. There's the stewards, right? So we've received gifts. Um, we don't have time to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're told that as believers, each of us has at least one spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit has given to us. So those gifts that we've received were to minister to one another using those gifts as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, uh, being wise with our, the goods God's given us. And then he gives some, uh, some uh, specific instruction, verse 11, some examples. 
if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. It's very simple. As God's gifted us, and as we've studied the word of God, let's just do what God has gifted us to do, just kind of a supernaturally natural way. So, so we'll be faithful stewards as we understand the Bible and serve in the empowering and leading of the Holy Spirit, just stepping out there and doing what God has called us to do. Now, with this in mind, sometimes people ask, well, how can you know your gifts, right? How can I know how God's gifted me? Well, um, you know, this is, this is something that I'm just going to give you some general instruction about. This is not um, absolutely hard and fast, but what I would say is, what do you like to do? right? So if you say, I have always hated studying my entire life, God's probably not called you to be a teacher. <laughs> it's, prob- it's probably not going to be what it is. But if you say, on the other hand, it says like, man, I just really love talking with people. I just really enjoy, you know, just interacting with people. And well, maybe God's given you the gift of encouragement, right? So step out there and start talking with people. So I would say, you know, what do you like to do? What do other people say that you're gifted at? What do other people see a calling in your life? Ask other people who you trust, not just yes men, okay? Not, not like the people on American Idol who are horrible at singing, and they're like, my mommy told me I'm the greatest singer ever. That's not what I'm talking about, <laughs> right? What, what, I, what I want you guys to do is, is talk to fellow Christians who are faithful and say, hey, what gifting do you see in my life? And then thirdly, and probably the hardest thing that most people fail at this point is actually step out in faith. Like start doing it, try it. Because what happens if you, if you step out and you think you're an encourager and you step out in that and everybody becomes super discouraged when you talk to them, <laughs> then you realize, okay, that's not my gift. Maybe I have a different gift. But we need to step out to see and see if God will meet us there and he'll direct because it says in 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2, Corinthians, 2 Chronicles 16, 9, essentially that God is looking everywhere to show himself strong on behalf of the one whose heart's loyal to him. God's looking for people to use. You don't have to strong arm God into using you. You don't have to be like, oh God, I just didn't really work it up and it's some kind of job interview. No, God wants to use you. God wants to grow you. The question for you and I is, will we do the job that God's called us to? Will we we be willing to be the under rowers he wants us to be? But if we will, then the empowering and leading of the Holy Spirit will enable us to do those gifts. All right, let's move on to our third um, our third section here, and this is the requirement of stewards. And so if you're not already there, go ahead and please turn back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, as we pick up in verse 2, notice this requirement of stewards. Paul writes, moreover, it is required in stewards. Okay, so this is the requirement. That word required, it means necessary, absolutely essential, a non-negotiable. So, so Paul's laying out for this sentence what's a non-negotiable, and we know about this, right? For certain jobs, you have to have a, a minimal educational requirement to get into this job, or you might have to have a minimal work experience for a promotion, that sort of thing. So that's what Paul is saying. It's absolutely required. So what is the requirement? I want to be a steward. I want to be faithful. What does God require of me? Notice, moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. That's the absolute requirement. It's not like in, um, you know, when you go to Six Flags, must be this tall to ride. (laughs) It's not a height requirement. 
right? It's, it's not any kind of like physical appearance requirement. It's none of those things. The requirement, if you say, I want to be used by God, what is the one thing above all things I need? You need to be faithful. If you're faithful, then God can do it. If you're faithful, then what will happen is you'll say, God, I just want to do what you want me to do. I, I want you to be able to entrust this to me, and God will use you. You see, faithfulness is what God is looking for in a steward of the mysteries of God. He's not looking, oh, you've got to be an introvert, you've got to be an extrovert, or you've got to do this, or you've got to do that, or you've got to be from this part of the world. No, no, no. He's just, God says, will you be faithful? And if you'll be faithful, God will use you. This makes perfect sense because faithfulness is what we love above all else in a relationship. Faithfulness in a spouse, faithfulness in a friend, faithfulness in a teammate, faithfulness in a coworker. God can do anything with a person that is faithful. And so the faithful person is simply this. It speaks of someone who's trustworthy. What does it mean to be faithful? It means to be trustworthy. It means worthy of trust. You know how nice it is when, when you talk to somebody and, and you really need something done and you just ask them, hey, could you do this thing? And they look you in the eye and they say, I'll do it. And you know that it's true. Like how, how what a blessing that is. But you've also known what it's like to see unfaithful people, right? Talks about in, in uh, faith, you know, the unfaithful man is like a, what is it? It's uh, like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. <laughs> I think that's what it says in Proverbs. And so there's three things I want to bring out about faithfulness. Number one, faithfulness is the result of habitual choices. Faithfulness is the result of habitual choices. You see, we make the decision to be faithful over and over again. So sometimes, so I want to kind of briefly share something I heard a couple of weeks ago in an audio book, and it's the difference between um, trying and training. Trying and training, okay? Think about you don't have any skill on the piano, and you try to play the piano. It's not going to go well. <laughs> Everyone's going to leave the room. So I guess if you want to clear the room, it worked. Um, but, but you can try it, and it doesn't go well. But you can instead say, I'm going to train to play the piano. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my time. I'm going to learn the scales. I'm going to seek instruction. I'm going to do that. And actually, no matter how unmusical you are, if you put enough training, I think you'll at least be competent right? They may not invite you to Carnegie Hall, but you'll be competent. But how did you do that? How did that happen? Through the habitual cho choice of training. So if you're not faithful today, if you've never been able to be counted on today, just be, start being faithful in a small thing. Train yourself to be faithful. Train yourself not to say something unless you're actually going to do it. That, that kind of thing. So what happens as we become these people, as these habitual choices are made, we become, be, be, we become faithful because we've made that choice over and over again. All right, second thing that we see about faithfulness is that it's something that is proven over a period of time. Okay, it's something that's proven over a period of time. As we show ourselves faithful over time, the Lord will entrust more to us. So faithfulness is not something that happens over a weekend. Faithfulness is not something that happens even over a week. It's, it's a long period of time. So if you want to become a faithful person, a faithful steward, realize it's a function of time. Third thing I want to bring out is that faithfulness is a manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. Right? The, the Holy Spirit will, will train us to be faithful. So as we walk in the leading and empowering of the Holy Spirit, we'll become more and more faithful. As a Holy Spirit, you know, we want to say something to that person at work. And the Holy Spirit's like, hey, can we talk about this first? 
And as we respond to the Holy Spirit's leading, then what happens will become more and more faithful because we've trained ourselves that where it's not about us, but it's about submitting to another. So these are wonderful things to think about. And as we become more and more faithful stewards, then God is going to use us more and more. All right, let's continue on to our next section, and that's the judge of stewards. And we find this in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. So we begin there in verse 3. Notice, but with me, it is a very small thing. Now, that phrase, very small thing, it's actually one word in the Greek, and it actually means this, the least or smallest thing. So, so Paul is essentially saying, it's the very smallest thing to me, the least of all things, what? But what is, what is he talking about? He says, but with me, it's the very smallest thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. Okay, what's, what's Paul talking about? Is he just like copying an attitude here? Yeah, I don't care what you guys think of me, right? Is that what Paul's doing? That's not, that's not what we know of Paul, but what is Paul saying? Because I believe verse three, actually this whole section, if we really take it to heart, it's incredibly freeing that what Paul is saying here. So remember that Paul had been disparaged by the Corinthians. See, the Corinthians, if you read through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you kind of hear Paul's side of the story, but you can kind of understand what they were saying about Paul. They had been disparaging Paul in a number of ways. They had been questioning his apostleship, okay? They had been mocking his oratory skills. They had been criticizing his physical appearance. And so now with all of this in mind, if Paul went home and allowed them to determine kind of who he, you know, who he was in the Lord, allowed them to determine his identity, then he would have been very depressed. But instead, Paul counted such judgment by the Corinthians as the smallest thing. It was of no ultimate consequence to him. Well, why? Well, we're going to see that in just a minute. But also notice here in this verse that Paul says that he didn't even care if a human court judged him. He wasn't worried about what they had to say. Now, for an example of this type of situation, would you turn to Acts chapter 4 for just a moment? Acts chapter 4, as you're turning there, um, the, you know, we've had the day of Pentecost. Um, we, we have Peter and John sharing, and they heal this guy. And after they heal this guy who had been lame, then the, re- the religious authorities said, here's the deal. You've got to stop talking about this Jesus. Do not talk about Jesus. So in Acts chapter 4, verses 18 through 20, we have a similar situation. We have a kind of a human court, if you will, governmental officials judging, and we're going to see how Peter responds to this, or Peter and John respond to it. It says, so they called them, so these are the religious leaders, they called Peter and John and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So they say, you know, in a, a, I would say in a polite manner, we're not going to listen to you guys, right? You're judging us. You're telling us not to do what Jesus told us to do. I want you to judge if we should listen to you more than we should listen to Jesus, because we're not going to listen to you more than to Jesus. We're going to do what God's called us to do. That's freeing. Because this goes back to having only one master. This goes back to, I'm only going to do what God told me to do. If everybody else doesn't like it, I don't have to be rude to them, but I'm not going to listen to them. I'm going to do what, only what God said. So as we turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says uh, he doesn't care if he's judged by the Corinthians. 
He doesn't say that if he's care, he doesn't care to be judged by a human court, doesn't care about this. But then he says the most shocking thing, the most kind of anti-America in 2024 thing. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself, right? So he doesn't say, well, I self-identify as someone who's pleasing God, right? Or any of these things. He just says, you know what? I don't care about you guys, what you say about me. I don't care what a human court says about me. And to be honest, I don't care what I say about me. <laughs> what a wonderful thing. So, so Paul refused to pass judgment on his own stewardship. He says, I'm not a good judge of actually my, my faithfulness. I'm not a good judge because I'm not the master. I'm not the owner. And now instead, notice what he says in verse four. He says, for I know of nothing against myself yet I'm not justified by this. In other words, Paul says, I have a clear conscience before the Lord. I think I'm doing what the Lord wants me to do. I feel like I'm serving the Lord in the right way, but he says, I'm not justified by this because I'm not the judge. See, if you and I are our own judges, what can we do? We could just let ourselves off for everything, and we do that, right? We're incredible defense attorneys, Oh, I did this thing, and you know what? I, I, I was mad in traffic, and I cut that guy off, and I let him know that I, I wasn't happy with him, but that's okay because he shouldn't have pulled out in front of me, right? And we let ourselves off, and we act like we're our own judges. But Paul says, I'm not my own judge. You're not your own judge. Only the Lord is your judge. I love what William MacDonald has to say about this, and I want to read for you his um, commentary he says, when the apostle says, I know of nothing against myself, he means that in the matter of Christian service, he is not conscious of any charge of unfaithfulness that might be brought against him. He does not mean for a moment that he does not know of any sin in his life or any way in which he falls short of perfection. The passage should be read in light of the context, and the subject here is Christian service and faithfulness in it. But even if he did not know anything against himself, yet he was not justified by this, he, was simply, he simply was not competent to judge in the matter. After all, the Lord is the judge. And this is incredibly freeing for you and I, because if we are constantly looking in our lives and saying, well, I wonder, and I'm judging, and I don't know, and this kind of, you're not the judge. I'm not the judge. The Lord is. See what Paul says next. He says, but he who judges me is the Lord. He who judges me is the Lord. So the Lord Jesus is the ultimate judge of the faithfulness of a steward. It is he who will judge whether or not we've been faithful to our calling. You and I won't get to be judged. When we're judged at the, at the Bema seat of Christ, you know, for, for how we've lived our lives as believers, he won't come up there and say, hey, well, Steve, what do you think? How do you think you did? You know, give me your own report card on the thing. He's not going to ask my opinion because my opinion is, is flawed. I don't have om, omnipotence. I don't have omniscience. I don't see things clearly. So for more on this subject, would you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for just a moment? 2 Corinthians 5. I want to look at verses 8 through 10. And here as you're turning there, Paul is speaking to the fact that every believer is going to stand at the Bema seat of Christ. Now understand, please, there's, there's two main kind of final judgments, if you will. There's the great white throne judgment that we read about in Revelation chapter 20. That's only for unbelievers. That's, that's the final judgment for unbelievers. The, those who have never placed their faith in Christ, they'll be judged by their works. But there's going to be a judgment for believers, how well we fulfilled Ephesians 2.10. How well we fill, fulfilled those, those good works that God had called for us to walk in. 
And so that's the, the, the judgment seat of Christ. And we'll receive either reward or loss of rewards accordingly. And so 2 Corinthians 5, verses 8 through 10, it says this. Paul writes, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So the moment that, that we depart from this earth, the moment we die here on earth, that it's going to be far better because we're going to be present with the Lord. And then he says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. That well-pleasing, right, it's being a good steward, being a faithful servant. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This is really our faithfulness. How we lived our lives as believers will be judged and will either receive rewards. You know, I'm sure all of us will receive some rewards and some of us will lose a loss of rewards for where we were unfaithful. But here's the fact of the whole thing. The Lord Jesus will judge our stewardship. And that's a sobering truth, right? Because it brings gravity to the situation. It reminds us that what we do matters. That, that when, for, for me, as a believer, you know, and, and I misrepresent Christ because I'm watching too much of Aggie football, right? Then, then what happens is that I'm like, oh, that's a loss of witness right there. That counts. But it's also, as sobering as it is to know that we'll be judged on our stewardship, it's also liberating because here, here's why. There's only one person in this life that we're seeking to please because there's only one person we're going to stand before to, to have judged how we've lived as believers. It's only Christ. Okay, nobody else. And so that's exciting. That person who we want to please is the Lord Jesus. When we free ourselves of the judgment of others and of the judgment of ourselves and seek only the Lord's approval, then we'll find ourselves walking in freedom and being a blessing to others. That's, it's an incredible place to be. Let's move on to our, our fifth section, and that's the time of judgment. We find this in uh, verse 5, part A. It says, therefore, judge nothing before the time. Judge nothing before the time. Paul is telling us that this present life today is not the time for judgment. Why? Well, because our stewardship hasn't yet run its course. Our stewardship isn't over. We have no idea how the Lord is working all the scattered pieces of our lives and the, the things that we've worked together for our good and for his glory. We don't know how it works. And so we're not a good judge. We don't know how our faithfulness today might affect eternity. And so there's no point in judging the fruit of our faithfulness because we don't have enough information. There's no point today in saying, oh, right, I just don't know and how it's gone and, and all that kind of stuff. We, we don't know. And I've done this. I've spent countless hours on the fruitlessness of this, of trying to figure it out. Instead, what we can do is saying, you know what? God's going to judge on that day. How can I just be faithful today? Let me just be faithful today. Because notice, uh, the judgment is to be reserved until the Lord comes. Again, we've already covered it. This is the Bema seat of Christ. But here's the big idea, that no ultimate judgment for our stewardship can be made until the Lord Jesus renders his righteous judgment. So we have to trust that the Lord is going to render that righteous judgment on that day. So the time of judgment will be when the Lord comes, when the Lord uh, takes us home and where he, he determines that at the Bema Seat. All right, let's look into our sixth section now, and that's the extent of judgment. Notice, who will bring both to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Okay, so here's the deal. So much of, of our service, it's just surfacy. We can only see what happens on the outside. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes. 
We don't know what's happening in the inner motivations of the heart. We don't know any of those things. And so this reference here that Paul is making is to the inner motives, the thoughts, and the attitudes. And so 1 Samuel 16, 7, I'll read it for you. It was when um, Saul, I'm sorry, when Samuel was going to anoint David as king. And this is what the Lord said to Samuel. Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So the Lord looks at the heart. We judge our faithfulness on results, like visible results. But if you faithfully serve the Lord and there's no visible results and you did it with the right heart and the right attitude, I guarantee you God's going gonna, gonna to bless you on that day, right? That's the kind of thing that he loves. And so I love what Jesus said in John 7, verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with a righteous judgment, okay? And so don't just look at the outside. One commentator put it this way, in view of this, we should be extremely careful in our appraisal of Christian service. We tend to exalt the spectacular and sensational and depreciate that which is menial or inconspicuous. The safe policy is to judge nothing before the time, but to wait until the Lord comes. He will be able to judge not only what is seen by the eye, but also the motives of the hearts, not only what was done, but why it was done. He will reveal the counsels of the hearts and needless to say, anything that was done for self-display or self-glory will fail to receive a reward. So this truth reminds us that the extent of Jesus' judgment of our faithfulness, it goes far beyond what things look like on the surface. He's going to search our hearts. Hebrews 4.13 says, And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, now before we move into this final section, I, I want to remind you that this is all a good thing. Because when you and I realize, I can't hide anything from God. There's no point in pretending to be something that I'm not because he's not going to reward that. So why don't I just be an honest person? Why don't I just tell the truth? Why don't I, as much as possible, seek to be transparent with other people, seek to tell them the truth, and then I don't have to live in dread of the day when Jesus is going to judge me because my whole life I've lived as a fake, and then on that day it's going to be revealed that all those things are burned up. Instead, why don't we just start living that way today, an honest way today, an open way today, a truthful way today, and then we don't have to dread. We don't have to worry or fear, but we can actually look forward to that day with anticipation. Finally, we come to our final section. This is source of praise. We find this last part of verse 5. Notice, then each one's praise will come from God. Then each one's praise will come from God. William MacDonald writes, that each one's praise will come from God is not to be taken as a flat promise that every believer's service will show up in a favorable way in that day. The meaning is that everyone who deserves praise will receive praise from God and not from men. Now, if we can take this to heart, again, this brings us more freedom. Because if you and I do Christian service seeking praise from people, then what's going to happen is at some point we're going to be discouraged. But in some, because at some point, people are not going to notice, they're not going to care, they're going to take it for granted, they're not going to pat you on the back, any of those things will happen. And so what, what we'll do is, is you'll quit on your Christian service because you were doing it for people, the praise of people, instead of the praise of God. But if we do it for the praise of God, if we look forward to that day coming where he's going to praise us, where he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, then all of a sudden, we have the energy because the Holy Spirit's going to honor that, the Holy Spirit will empower us to keep going. 
Because when you do things God's way, God will give you the power to do it. The reason why we run out of steam in our Christian walk is we're trying to do things our way and our power, and our way and our power are so limited. But God's way is perfect, known to eternity uh, are all his works, and he's going to empower you and empower me in, in this, this unlimited way that he has to do what he's called us to do. It's a beautiful thing. Now, ultimately, this each one's praise will come from God. It's a, it's a fitting end to this passage, this part that we're studying, focused on the importance of being a faithful servant. Because at the end of the day, a servant's job is to do what pleases his master. And so I want you to let that in your mind. Think about yourself. You're out. Let's, let's change the imagery to a, a farmer. You're out in the field all day, and you're working. That day is your life. And you're just out in that field, and you've had a lot that's happened to you in that, in that field. Lots of ups and downs. And then the day comes where you hear the dinner bell, and that's the Lord calling you back to the house. That's the day that the Lord calls you home. And as you come, there's the Lord standing on the porch, ready to greet you. Your work day is over. It's time for your reward. As we think about our life in that way, that's exciting. To think that the day is coming where he's going to call us home and give us that reward for the effort we've put in, for those tears, for all of that stuff that we went through, that we continued to plow that field and not look back. That's something to keep us going. So at the end of the day, a servant's job is to do what pleases his master. And we're able to please the Lord Jesus if our goal is to receive praise from him and not from man. If we let go of receiving praise from man, then what's going to happen is, is we kind of untrain ourselves and say, I'm just going to seek praise from the Lord. And the day is coming where he's going to please, is, he's going to please, uh, sorry, praise me. Now, don't think that the Lord's going to be silent until that day. Because the Lord is going to encourage you. The Lord's going to exhort you. The Lord's going to use other people as a way to, to, to kind of continue helping you on the race. But the reason why he can do that is because you're not seeking it from them. Okay, if you're not seeking praise from man, God can use people to encourage you. But if you're seeking praise from man and not from him, then true encouragement will dry up. So it's important for us to, to seek our praise from him. So we want to look forward to hearing those beautiful words, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So as we close, I hope uh, we will consider the following questions. I have a few questions, just four of them, uh, that kind of combine some of the things we've talked about today. And, and my hope is that you and I would seek to live today in light of that day. It's been well said by Kenneth Boa that we should only have two days on our calendar, today and that day. And what he meant by that day is the day we stand before Christ at the Bama seat. Just two days on our calendar, today and that day. And so, the, the, and hopefully, as we do that, you and I will stand well as servants before our master. So number one, are we faithful servants and stewards? That's what God wants us to be, faithful, listening to him as our master and stewarding well those things he's entrusted to us. Number two, do we recognize Jesus as our judge? Are we letting go of other people judging us? Are we letting go of human courts judging us? Are we letting go of our own judgment of ourselves, but instead saying, none of that judgment matters. What matters is what Jesus thinks about me. He is my judge. Thirdly, or, or third, are we judging our stewardship before the time? Do we go home every day and say, well, I wonder how my stewardship is? 
Are we making our own little spiritual baseball card? You know, what's my batting average? And what's all these kind of things on there? You and I, that's, that's, that's a fruitless endeavor. You and I are not good judges of that. Let's wait until that time. And then fourthly and finally, are we seeking the praise of the Lord alone? Because as we seek only his praise and not the praise of men, then what happens, we'll be free to love and serve people properly, not trying to get something from them, but instead doing that because we want that praise from the Lord because he's the one we desire to please. 